while since we've had the Tiki Creeps on Monster Kid Radio, so let's play their song Bottom Feeder from their album Idol Worship on episode 360 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, and surf music aficionado, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show, and big thanks to the Tiki Creeps for making some cool music. You can find them at tikicreeps.bandcamp.com. They are a surf band based out of Los Angeles, California, but if you're not in the LA area and can't hear them play live or pick up their album locally, you can just buy their album on Bandcamp. Seven really cool songs. This week on Monster Kid Radio, we've got a lot to talk about. We've got a lot of really good content, some emails from you guys and gals that we're going to be going over later in the show. I'm going to be joined by my wife, Brenda, who has agreed to read the emails again this time around. So she's going to be on the show reading your words. We have as our special guest this week, filmmaker Joe Sherlock. Joe is a cinematographer, an editor, an editor. Joe is not an editor. Joe is an editor, a cinematographer, a writer, a producer, a composer, and a director, and a fan of the movie The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake. So we're going to be talking about that film with Joe. But before we talk about that, we're going to play the Classic Five with him, and we're going to learn a little bit more about his involvement with what I'm calling the official sequel to the, yeah, I'm going to call it a classic, film Monos, The Hands of Fate. He was the cinematographer on Monos Returns. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well and announce the world premiere, when it's coming, where you can see it, when you can see it, how you can see it, if you go to Crypticon Seattle. And we'll talk about that during the conversation with Joe here in a little bit. Before we get to all of that, though, I just wanted to read something that was sent to me via Facebook. This was from listener Stephen L. He said, just got done listening to episode 359, the Dracula's Daughter episode. Dracula's Daughter is a film I revisited recently and thoroughly enjoy it. I'm glad you showcased this almost forgotten gem. Loving the podcast, maybe someday I can do the five-card bit with you. That's the classic five. Even at my age, I dare to dream. I understand that you've been going through a lot lately. Thank you for giving your time for us monster kids of all ages. Stephen, I'll be in touch with you about doing the classic five. Why don't... Yeah, I'll be in touch with you, but... I do want to address here on the show uh, what you just said. I understand you've been going through a lot lately. I've mentioned this on Facebook, and I know not everybody is on Facebook, but I want to say thank you to everybody who's been patient with me and Monster Kid Radio for the times that it's been running a little late or I drop a segment. I've been going through some health stuff. And I have type 2 diabetes. I just found out about a week and a half ago, and we're trying to get on top of that with medication and some diet and some lifestyle changes. This includes not staying up till 1 or 2 a.m. every night trying to get the show done, eating better, not doing nearly as much coffee because you know, I don't like it straight. I put stuff in it, and that's bad for the diabetes. So, you know, my, my energy levels sometimes aren't as high as I'd like them to be yet. So it does impact the podcast. So I want to thank everybody for their patience and their understanding and their support. I do plan on licking this whole diabetes thing and getting it under control and being around for a while. Don't think Monster Kid Radio is going anywhere anytime soon. Fingers and tentacles crossed. Thank you, Stephen, for writing in and saying something. I really appreciate it. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get to what Joe Sherlock had to say about Monos, about the four schools of Jonathan Drake, and about everything else. And I know I always say that's going to happen right after this, because this is usually a handful of trailers, maybe a promo. I'm going to do that, but... We're going to sneak some trailers from some of Joe's movies into the mix this time around as well. So that's happening now. Greetings, my friends. You are interested in the bizarre, the odd, the strange. What you're about to see may horrify some, but I think you'll find it to your liking. 
Though you may want to look away, do not. Keep your eyes peeled, or I'll have to peel them for you. We will wait no longer, so hold on to your colon, because here we go. They crawled from Joe's Garage, a science fiction horror triple feature of no-budget B-movie madness. In Dimension of Blood, Dr. Thomas Mobius is researching a strange life form that the government claims was found at the bottom of a deep mining shaft in South America. Suspecting there may be more to this than he's being told, he enlists the aid of lab assistant Rachel Roundtree. When a fellow scientist calls for a clandestine meeting, but then disappears, the plot thickens, and a mysterious man in black begins appearing and doing away with all who stand in his way. Can Dr. Mobius and Miss Roundtree unravel the mystery of who the man in black is and what the life forms really are before it's too late? In Monster in the Garage, we meet Steve. He's a slob and everyone gives him a hard time about it. He and his lovely wife Edie are planning a party at their house this evening. Little do they know that a flying saucer from another world has crash-landed in the field behind their house. Not only that, but the hungry creature from inside the ship has escaped and is hiding in their cluttered garage. As guests arrive for the party, some will make their way to the garage and may never be seen again. Crimson Heather concerns Heather Desire, Vampire. After a steamy shower and slipping into her vinyl corset, chains and thigh-high boots, she is met by a vengeful huntress who is determined to slay this bloodsucker. Just the first in a series of encounters where Heather must use her cunning and sex appeal to survive. Trolling nightclubs and bringing home strangers for her next meal is just another day in the life of this sexy vampire. A science fiction horror triple feature of no budget B-movie madness. Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Strange experiments. Mysterious monsters. Lovecraftian horror, telekinetic bloodletting, ravenous insanity. These are merely a sampling of what lies beyond the wall of fear. 
eight twisted tales envelope you in the dark evil that whispers just below the surface of reality. You've got Bigfoot. You've got all that 70s fantastic garbage. It's hotter than hell right now. I play Debbie in Monos, The Hands of Fate, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I've been wanting to have Joe Sherlock on Monster Kid Radio for a while now, and conversations would start, and then I would drop the ball, and I'd get a whole bunch of other people going on, and then he'd go off and make a movie. Finally, we've got him on the show. Joe Sherlock, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Don't be so hard on yourself. We're both busy men. We, we, we are busy. We are busy. You making movies. Like I said, you're a filmmaker here in Oregon. I am. How long have you been making movies? Well, let me tell you, the way I describe it now is I'm on my third decade of making micro-budget horror, which sounds pretty good, right? I mean, I <laughs> I went, I got to 20 <laughs> years a few years back, and then I thought, well, you know, over 20 years sounds pretty good, but entering my third decade sounds pretty good, too. Yeah, that, it does a little bit more gravitas, you know, it's like <laughs> I guess. three decades of, yeah. Anyway, yeah, a long time. So obviously I can't stop. Well, that's good. I like it. I like what you do. So I'm I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) 
Excellent. So you've been going at it for a while. You mentioned they're micro budget movies, but you know, there's so much fun. I've even been to a premiere uh, that you were the cinematographer on of uh, Platoon of the Dead back in 2009. That was a yeah. blast. <laughs> yeah. That, and that's the fun part. I mean, there, there's a lot of fun parts of it. I, and I like all of it. I like writing the stuff, directing it, cutting it together, doing the music, designing the covers, et cetera, and, and setting up screenings. And that's, that's really fun because, um, you know, getting to see it with an audience in a theater pub or basement of a, a bar. I've done that too. Or at a <laughs> horror convention. You know, the nice thing is usually people who are uh, inclined to like that sort of low budget horror stuff. And so everybody gets it and, and we all just have a good time with it. You know, I'm looking at your uh, credit list online and I mean, you said you like doing it all. Is there one role producer, cinematographer, writer, director that you, you prefer or do you just kind of play the field there? You know, it uh, it's it's a non-answer, but it's the truth. Is I like all the parts at various times, right? So <laughs> you know, some of the some of the uh, scheduling stuff. You know, once once I have a script written and I've got some things, some people cast and everything. You know, putting those pieces together is not as exciting, not as creative, I suppose, because what you're really doing is dealing with people's schedules. Mm -hmm. And I'm always trying to be courteous and not waste anybody's time i mean including myself but also anybody else's so i try to see how quickly we can schedule something or how we can uh you know take care of this stuff and this stuff and this stuff all kind of in one day or whatever so that it doesn't waste anybody's time because because people are just doing this because they love it so you know i suppose that's not thrilling just because it's putting together a puzzle of everybody's schedule when they're available and locations, et cetera. Okay. But really, you know, when I'm in the midst of doing this stuff, I kind of love everything. I love, you know, I love the, when I'm there directing because you never know when magic's going to happen. Obviously you have a plan, you have storyboards, et cetera, but sometimes either I or someone comes up and I, with an idea or there's an object in the room or a, you know, an alternate location that someone suggests. It's like, Oh my God, yeah, let's do that. I, as a quick example, the latest movie I've been working on is called Strange Monsters. I'm still in the midst of making it. But we were shooting some stuff last summer, and I had this sequence set for this girl to be sunbathing out in the backyard, and this uh, monster comes and, and attacks her. Actually, it's not actually it's not the monster yet. It's a guy attacks her. The monster's later. But anyway, and I was just going to shoot it on this on the back porch of this one house we were shooting at. The, the guy whose house it was, who I know, is a realtor. And so... He actually knew of a house that was for sale, so it was vacant at the time, but it had this gigantic pool and like this Spanish tile roof and everything. And he said, hey, man, if basically it's just this girl sunbathing outside and this guy comes up and attacks her and then someone else attacks him, if that's really all it is, let's go over to this other like million dollar house and shoot this by the pool. Wow. And, <laughs> and so we did, right? So, you know, stuff like that happens. When you're actually in production, you know, then the same thing in editing magic happens. You, you have a plan to cut something together in a certain way. And sometimes you realize, oh, I could flip flop this or I could do this or I could go get this insert shot and that'll make it totally magic. Same thing with music. Sometimes, you know, you get something put together and just make something so much more, you know, than really what it was before. Or it, a lot of times what happens is it speeds everything up so that, um, you know, even if you do sort of an initial edit and things kind of drag a little bit. I always keep in mind, once the music's there, it's going to move things along quicker. So um, yeah, I kind of do like all the parts of it. You said it was a non-answer, but you just gave me like three, four, five minutes of content. Know, so right? I'm good with that, man. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's the non-answer in that, oh, I like all of them, right? <laughs> I, love, I love the story. I love the idea that this guy's like, yeah, you know, I have access to this big million dollar home. Let's do it. I mean, instant production value right there, right? Exactly. I mean, it would have been just like a girl on a 
concrete patio next to a house, right? But now it's so much more than that. That's awesome. And <laughs> I'm assuming you're a fan of the classic monster movies. Otherwise, you wouldn't have reached out to me about being on the show. Have, have you found like inspiration or, or elements from these movies kind of working their way into what you're doing now? Oh, I'm sure I have. You know, it's funny watching. I mean, I don't want to jump ahead. Watching The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, I wonder how much influence that has mm-hmm. on various things I've done. I mean, I do I do like skulls and images of that and work that into a lot of things. I mean, my production company currently is called Skull Face Astronauts. So, you know, I, I grew up, I was born outside of Philly and grew up in New Jersey till I was 11. Mm-hmm. They had a horror host on out of Philadelphia named Dr. Shock. And he had uh, four hours of stuff on Saturday afternoons, two, two hour shows, horror theater. And now I'm forgetting the other one. Anyway, he had uh uh, Dr. Shock was on for so two movies each show every Saturday. And, you know, I loved that stuff. That's where I first saw The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake and all kinds of other stuff. So early on, I was watching sort of the classic horror stuff because that's what was available mm-hmm. in there. And the other thing, the other little sidebar I'll tell you is my local library back there in New Jersey, they were showing movies. My dad took me to see Dracula at the library. Ooh. And I remember that. I mean, I don't know how old I was, but. Like I said, I, I moved when I was 11, so uh, I was young and impressionable. Yeah, so it was certainly absorbing all that as a kid. And even when I moved out to Oregon, Channel 12 KPTV would run all kinds of stuff. And so you know, a lot of that stuff was more like the 60s, early 70s stuff that they would get in syndication packages, mm-hmm. but definitely influenced by a lot of stuff on there. So I don't know. It's hard to say where my exact influences are, but I think it's the whole ball of wax. Right? Sure. And I do wish like KPTV and them would, you know, I, I wish there was a local outlet. I mean, cause I'm here in Oregon, you're here in Oregon. I wish there was a yeah. local outlet for more of that on some of the public access maybe, or something like that. Just, just to bring something in. I mean, there's plenty of stuff on the internet. I know you're a, a, yeah. a fan of Dr. Drek, for example. Um, oh, sure, you know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them out there on the internet doing stuff and, and, and Drek's amazing, but yeah, I just wish there was something more local, you know? You know, the other thing, and not to get too philosophical about it, but it is a different time. I mean, yeah. a lot of that stuff was you were limited in your choices. And so, so much of it was about scheduling and when it was on and when you were available. And so, you know, as you're, like I said, when I was a kid, you know, I would, I'd go out and play, and, but then I'd come back in the house and watch Dr. Shock and then probably go out and play again. <laughs> um, and, you know, and even with KPTV, I remember, you know, Saturdays they would show kinds of stuff, but then they'd show stuff late night. And then, you know, we're moving more into the, the 80s, I suppose, but for me, but the CBS late movie was another thing, mm-hmm. being in middle school and high school, that showed, you know, all kinds of stuff, but showed a fair amount of horror. They showed a lot of Hammer stuff and Amicus things, and, and I, that's where I, believe it or not, the CBS late movie is where I first saw Phantasm. Oh, wow. An extremely influential movie on me. Yeah, of all places, I saw it on on TV, but I saw it on the late movie. So that was like, my parents were asleep and I was by myself in the dark watching this show and it was super creepy. Wow. That's pretty cool. No, um, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine phantasm on network TV now. I mean, there's some things in there they probably would have to cut. Uh, <laughs> you know, of course I don't remember. I mean, I, I remember all kinds of crazy stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember what wasn't there, but it's funny. Cause I told Don Coscarelli that story when I met him the first time at Crypticon Seattle. And I thought, well, this is a, I mean, I don't know. He's probably heard this story a million times from millions of people, but it's my story. It's like, oh man, this is the first time I saw it. And I was alone in the dark sitting in front of the TV and it was so creepy. And that scene with the Volkswagen turned on its side was so cool. And he just winced because, you know, his experience was it killed him 
how much they chopped it up. And that's what he said. He said, oh, boy, they chopped that up so much. <laughs> you know, and it was a weird disconnect because I was trying to say this movie was so cool. And here's the effect it had on me. And obviously he, you know, his experience was uh, not great because, of course, it wasn't presented the way he intended. He's a nice guy. I've had a chance to chat with him a couple of times. He's a great guy and, and a big fan of all this stuff. Yeah, I've, you know, I've only seen him at a few conventions, but always seems to be a very nice guy. Very cool. No, Phantasm is definitely, uh, I think what the first time you see it, depending on where you are, is going to have an impact on you. I, I, I did all four of the films back to back to back to back over the course of wow. two nights. And, you know, I was home alone. My wife was out of town for something. And yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that would be, see that, that's interesting. Like you said, it's, it's a lot of it depends on when mm -hmm. and where you saw it. That That's a cool way to experience it. I think that's the case with a lot of films too. Like, I don't know how many people saw Monos for the first time on MST3K. Yeah, you like that segue, huh? A ton. <laughs> a ton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Monos, the hands of fate. You know, we have to talk about Monos. I mean, you mentioned Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, and we're going to get there. There's a couple sure. more things we need to talk about first, especially Monos, because I'm going to tell you, I'm a fan of Monos, the hands of fate. Straight. I don't need to see it on Mystery Science Theater 3000. I have. I own it that way. Uh -huh. But I, I actually enjoy watching it straight. And I don't know what that says about me, but I dig it. I mean, I, I was involved with the uh, Kickstarter when it was being restored and put out on Blu-ray. I've become friends with Jackie over the years. Uh, she's amazing. Yeah. And when you guys announced that you were doing a sequel, and, and I'm going to call it an official sequel because Jackie's involved and, and the master himself is involved. Right. Well, that's what we wow. do. That, that, that's what we do and why we do it, because the two of them are involved and a few other legacy cast members. It really is an official sequel, as much as you can get one. When was the first time you saw Manos? Well, this is going to be embarrassing. I don't know that I'd seen. Well, I know I had not seen the whole movie before mm -hmm. I met Jackie. So it was it was right after I met her that I sought out and watched the whole movie. I, I know I had seen parts of it and it might have been on MST3K. Anyway, yeah. So it was actually after I had met her. A few years back at Crypticon Seattle, that's the, I tell you, that's the linchpin for so much of this. Um, <laughs> yeah, that I watched the whole thing. And I think what it says about you is that you are a trooper. Because, man, that's tough to get through. That's, you know, the <laughs> plain version, as it were. Because, um, yeah, there's just so many stretches where it's like, oh, my God, something needs to happen. But, you know, I, I and I said this, I was lucky enough to be on a panel a few years ago about Manos and, and the upcoming Manos Returns. And the thing I said about it is that it has this weird Lovecraftian undercurrent, the whole like cult out in the middle of nowhere that's talking about this God from beyond or a void or whatever is creepy. And it speaks to a larger mythos than you get in a poorly made cheap horror movie made by a fertilizer salesman on a bet. You know, I mean, that whole thing. <laughs> And and honestly, that you know, the thing that I found out was Tom Naiman pretty much wrote that monologue he did, the big monologue about oh, Manos, Lord of Darkness, blah blah blah. Which him being an artist and kind of a sensitive, thoughtful artist guy um, makes sense that he would write something that deep. But it really, that's the thing that does it is when he does that speech, it's like wow, there's like a whole mythos behind this thing. We're just seeing what's happening on the surface somewhere in another dimension or realm or darkness or whatever it is, there's stuff going on. And to me, again, that's a Lovecraftian kind of idea. And I think that is why Manos Returns has resonated with a lot of people, you know, beyond the fans of bad movie stuff. I think those where it sticks or especially those who like want to do spinoffs or projects inspired by it, whether it be a video game or a coloring book or whatever, 
you know, I think the fact that that speech gives a little more meat to the whole concept, and that's what perhaps raises it above, you know, other low-budget horror stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know somebody – Actually, I know two people, one of them kind of sort of being me involved in a project inspired by Manos. We'll talk off mic. We'll talk off mic. Yeah, cool. Anyway, so when you first saw it, was it because they were talking about doing a sequel or was it a matter of let's show it to them and then tell them it's a sequel? Like, how was that? It was not even, there was no sequel, Doug. I'm trying to, I'm going to get my years mixed up because now it's been two years since we made Manos. So it was three years ago, I guess, that I met Jackie at crypticon and found out that she lived like 45 minutes away from me and i was like wow well we need to do a movie together and she's like yeah that sounds cool and so again so this would have been in the spring and so i at the time i was working on a project called beyond the wall of fear which is a horror anthology i made a whole i made and ultimately made eight little short stories that stuck together it's got a great soundtrack too by the way Just oh thank you so yeah i like doing that so in the spring met her at crypticon you know and, and actually that year there was a um there was a documentary that a guy named calvin from portland had made that was like a conversation with jackie and i think it was 20 minutes long it was her talking about the movie and having grown up having you know with that as a part of her life and uh, and they made this nice little documentary about it so like i said it was after the convention that i thought well i need to seek out this monos because i've seen this interview now and i've met her i need to get up to speed on what things are about so that's why i watched it that summer i worked with jackie i had written a short segment for the movie called the curse of pelican bay and so shot that with her and then i think it was that fall that there started to be talk about doing a sequel. So that's what happened. I watched Miles because I met her, but it was before any talk of any sequel or anything like that. Uh, she's fantastic. Uh, like I said, I've met her a few times myself, and she's yeah. she's wonderful, and she's so supportive of anybody wanting to do something Manos related. It's, she it's, is, yeah. it's great. And to have her involved in this this sequel, I mean, this this project, is fantastic as well. Now, you're the cinematographer. Yes. Jackie's obviously in it, uh, reprising her role. Her father's in it. Reply, right. reprising his role is directed by is it tanya atomic atomica yeah atomic yes okay tanya atomic yep. who i still need to get on the show myself at some point i'd love to chat with her oh she's she's cool uh, yeah and you said the movie was finished two years ago but nobody's seen it yet we're shooting it two years two summers ago okay, we we're gotcha, shooting gotcha is what I, but it is yeah. i was just trying to think of the timeline of because i knew i met jackie at crypticon then during the summer, we shot my movie and then cycle around to the next summer and we were shooting Monos Returns. And that's that's what I was trying to figure out. Gotcha. Yeah. So and actually the first stuff we shot was with her dad, Tom Naiman, the master. Uh, we actually shot that at the end of the year before the summer we shot it. And we shot a bunch of stuff with him on a green screen. He He had health problems. And so part of it was... You know, we wanted to make sure we got that footage before mm-hmm. his health problems got to the point where he couldn't really, you know, perform. But also, a lot of the reason I think that Jackie wanted to do this and did a lot of stuff Monos related was because it was allowed her a connection with her dad. That was that was a way they connected. And so by doing various projects, either a commentary or, you know, whatever else it was that they were both involved in, it was something she could do with her dad. And so there was that angle of it too. And so shooting his stuff 
before we shot all the rest of the movie was just another way to do something with him and have that be something that they could do together. Mm -hmm. So that was really special. I mean, I drove up to the town where they lived and um, there was a very small crew and set up a green screen and a bunch of lights. Uh, There was a chair that I think Jackie had carved. She either carved it or maybe it was at this one location we had, but it was this cool chair, like carved out of a one piece of, of a tree. And, uh, Got him all set up in the robes. I remember I was like at one point I was standing off screen with a giant box fan, moving a box fan around to sort of blow his hair and the cape around, (laughs) you know, which sounds kind of goofy and like almost harkens back to the roots of like no budget thing. But hey, you know, it works. That's all you need. Right. So anyway, that was the first thing actually we shot. That was towards the end of the year. And then that following summer, actually in uh, Dallas, Oregon and Fall City, Oregon, did the actual shooting of it. And then it'll be two summers, you know, two years this summer that that happened. So about a year and a half of, of all the post-production it was a long process. You know, you said moving the box fan around to make his hair move and all that. That's probably more work than anything that the original filmmakers did in the original film. Uh, just, I mean, and I'm not dogging on the original film. Like I said, I love it. I'm just saying, you know, it's, it seems right on track. So <laughs> It's funny because there's always... You know, even with the worst things ever, it always takes a lot of effort to do it, which is why it's so hard for me. I mean, I started out doing a lot of reviews of B-movies. I used to publish a zine called Dr. Squid that was um, B-movie reviews. I I loved B-movies, and so I started writing reviews of them. And, and I did that for quite a while before I sort of moved into actually making my own stuff. I mean, I had always, I had always been shooting stuff with, like, my dad's Super 8 camera when I was little, and then then you know the VHS giant camera came into vogue, and my friend had one, then we got one, and... We'd make stuff out in the backyard and and go out on the weekends and make little mini movies and stuff like that, but nothing quote unquote real that we're planning on like selling to the world or sharing with the world. And so there did get to be a point where I was reviewing these movies and uh, there was a little hesitation because I realized, wow, even though this thing is terrible, I, I, there's a lot of work involved, you know. And so even with Monos, it's like as bad as it is, there's a lot of work involved. And and the more you read about it, like Jackie's got a book out that talks a lot about it, you know, all of the costumes and all the artwork. I mean, her dad and her mom were all involved in doing all the artwork, the painting, the set design, you know, the columns, the the hand sculpture and all the bride's dresses and everything. Always a lot of work involved, you know, however bad something appears on screen. So I just remember at a certain point I – started to feel bad, like, oh, I'm feeling like I can't really effectively review stuff anymore. I can't objectively review it because I, even if something was bad and I could, I would sort of feel like I need to recommend people not watch it. I felt like, gosh, you know, it's a shame to have to say, gosh, don't watch this. It's terrible because I could tell the people who made it were trying, you know? And that's at the point where I was like, I just need to stop doing these reviews because I'm not useful at it anymore. You know, and I think maybe that's kind of where my mindset is, too, like when it comes to watching Monos or some of these other movies. Uh, and, and I've talked with Michael Legge, uh, Dr. Drake, a lot about this, that, you know, they may be technically ill-made. Right. <laughs> there might be yeah, some problems. Sure. But if you're enjoying the movie while you're watching it anyway, it's a good movie as far as you – know, it's fine. You know, and, and there's so many of these movies that I love that – so many other people say they don't like because they're bad or whatever. I don't care. I love them. They make me smile. Yeah. My, my movie collection is filled with all sorts of stuff that I'm sure most people would not. Well, most people outside of this audience would yeah. turn their nose up at. Well, and I've said for a long time, I mean, I won't belabor the point, but I, just one more thing. I've said for a long time that 
you know, as far as reviews, I mean, you need to find a reviewer or reviewers that that fit your taste, you know. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you're reading the New York Times and that you sort of tend to agree with most of their review their reviews, then you're in good shape, right? But, uh, you know, if not, then find something else. You know, maybe it's you know Fred's House of Horror blog or whatever it is. You know, that you know, find <laughs> someone who has the similar taste to you, and then you'll get kind of the real deal. It's like, well, should I watch this movie about a giant monster alligator or not? You know, I mean, the New York Times is not going to tell you. <laughs> That you should watch that ever, probably, right? <laughs> but, you know, I don't know if there's a Fred's House of Horror site or not. Maybe there will be now. But, you know, but that might be a better source to say, you know, well, really, in the realm of giant alligator movies, this one is worth your time. Like I said, you find something that, that, that your taste aligns with, and, and then it kind of works better. And for the record, the answer to that question, should I watch this movie with this giant alligator, is always yes. Yeah, I suppose I'm just, so, right? You know, I'm just, just saying. Alligator, such a great movie. Okay. <laughs> Monos is done. It's coming out. It's got its world premiere at this year's Crypticon Seattle, uh, which is the first weekend of May this year at the Doubletree in Seattle. And yes, that's I am so happy for you guys. We are psyched, I tell you, because like as I mentioned earlier, Crypticon Seattle is a linchpin for this thing. I met Jackie at Crypticon. I met Tanya at Crypticon. I met Rachel through Tanya, I believe. And so the four of us that ended up being the co-producers and team that puts to put this together really is Crypticon that sort of all connected us together. The reason that as it came together, the reason that, you know, someone thought of me for shooting it is because I had met them at Crypticon. It was because of those connections. So it's great to be sort of coming full circle back to that, to do the premiere. And it is Friday, May 4th, 9 PM. Okay. I was going to ask if there's a date set yet. Okay. Excellent. So it's, Coming out on a Friday, and, and you're going to be there. Tanya's going to be there, I assume. I assume Jackie's going to be there. Yep. And yeah, Rachel. So. Uh, and Rachel's one of the producers. She co-wrote it. So Jackie and Tanya and Rachel co-wrote it together. Okay. Uh, I know that uh, several other producers are coming. This has – I talked about the legacy cast. So, yes, yeah. Jackie – Jackie Neiman Jones returns as Debbie. That's the character she played as a little girl in the original movie, playing the same character 50 years later. Still at the lodge. Uh, her dad, Tom Naiman, plays the master, uh, same as the original. Diane plays the mom, Maggie, same woman that played her mom in the original, plays her mom in the new movie, 50 years later, still in the lodge. So we've got those three people from the original movie. The guy playing the sheriff in our movie is named Brian Jennings. His dad played the sheriff in the original movie. Nice. So we've got all that. And then, of course, there's some new people we've brought on board. But um, it is really cool to have that connection to the original. And Jackie did uh, – there's a painting and so, and a, like a hand staff for Torgo that Jackie made just in the same style that her dad had made those for the original movie. So it's really neat to have those connections to that original. And the fact that it's – you know, it's the same characters. It's the story. And it's like what happened – what happens when these people are stuck in this crazy place 50 years later? I'm so looking forward to it. Just, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked. <laughs> I think it's so easy to say, well, it's a public domain movie. You can do whatever you want with it. But it sounds like you guys and gals really work to make it fit. I, I'm real curious to see how Torgo is pulled off. I know, you know, obviously he's the original actor is no longer with us and, and, and such. Right. Such an iconic character uh, played by Steven Shields in your version of the film or in your sequel. I'm excited to see how he comes right. out. Uh, I'm excited just to see all the uh, production design and the artwork that Jackie's put into it. 
I, I'm just stoked. I, I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and I, I'm I'm a proud supporter of Monos Returns, and and I can't wait to That's see awesome. it and yeah. even have it in my movie collection. Well, the one thing I'll say is is that um, we tried really hard to make a good movie, so we didn't we didn't try to make a bad movie. We didn't try to make a movie that appeared to be bad. We didn't want to make a so bad it's good movie. We actually wanted to try to make something that was, uh, you know, a real film. And we also weren't making something that was like mm-hmm. a parody of the original, you know, that was like a meta thing referencing the movie existing or something like that. So whatever. I mean, I don't know when this will air, but, uh, you know, at some point people will see it. But I know that's been the question or rumor or thought for a while, those various ideas like, Oh, they're going to make something that's terrible. Why would I want to watch that? Or, you know, they're going to make fun of it just like everybody else does. And that's actually not what we did. So I think it turned out really well. I mean, obviously I'm close to it. I've seen it a hundred times. We've gone through uh, <laughs> editing and color correction and music and tweaking and this and that. And the other thing I, you know, I, I thought Steven did greatest Torgo. You're right. It, those are big shuffling shoes to fill. Um, but <laughs> To his credit, I mean, he really did his homework. He's a very thoughtful guy, and and so really, I think, tried to get inside the head, really study the original to really figure out where Torio was coming from and the sort of tortured life that he lives. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I thought, you know, people are going to have their own opinions, but I thought he, I thought he did great. We were lucky to have him. You mentioned music, and and I know we're supposed to be talking about Four Schools of Jonathan Drake, and we'll get there. But yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> you mentioned music. Did you guys get the singer from the original film to do a song in this did i hear that right understand that right yes yeah in fact in fact i think she does two songs yes we did i mean jackie in the process of writing her book you know i think she's been on your show talking about this Mm -hmm. she started a blog several years back as a way to kind of talk about this whole experience to the world and through that blog started contacting people and then it became like her thing, like, well, I'm going to reach out and try to find people who were involved in that original production. You know, there's people listed in the credits, but there's a bunch of people that weren't even listed in the credits that had worked on it. And so over the years, she's managed to connect with people who were involved in, you know, people who were the brides and people who were involved in different parts of the process, including the music, including the singer. And then, you know, that was a lot of the basis of her eventual book. But because she had made contact with all these people, yeah, we got the singer to, to record a couple of new versions. And the guess Corey, I can't remember his last name. Corey uh, did the score for us, and he worked with with the singer to do some new versions. So yeah, there, there's another connection to the original. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, I'll make sure, listeners. Everything that we've talked about here, Jackie's book, her blog, uh, Crypticon, there will be links in the show notes to all of this over at monsterkidradio.net. So head over there to, to find a way to either pick up her book, which is excellent, read her blog, learn about the premiere, all of that. Just head over there to check it out, everything we talk about. Plus, we'll make sure there's links to all of Joe's uh, movies, his website, and everything else he's got going on. So that will all be there. We have something that we do here on Monster Kid Radio, and, and I feel like we've already probably introduced you well enough to the audience, but there's a game that we play that we've got to play with every new list or new guest of the show. It's called the Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here, and each one of these cards has a this or that, yes or no style question about classic monster movies. There's no wrong answers. I'm going to give the deck one more shuffle here. I'm glad to hear you say no wrong answers because, you know, I've listened to a few and I, I just thought, man, that, some of those questions I would have no idea because I, you know, I mean, I love all kinds of monster movies from a lot of different eras. And I know this show focuses on, you know, mostly a certain chunk of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like, you know, I'm not an expert in that 
area, but let's see what happens. Hey, you don't have to be an expert to be a guest on Monsecure Radio. You just have to be a fan. So that's, that All right. this works for me. Okay, here we go. I gave it a shuffle or two and card number one. Joe, what do you prefer? Hammer films or Universal films? If you had to pick one. Wow. Um, well, I'll say Universal. Okay. And, and the reason is, I think, because those probably made a bigger impression on me because I saw them first. And so, therefore, if I had to choose, which I love them all, I love them both, I suppose I might choose those if only because of that sort of sentimental reason. Okay. Okay. Hey, fair enough. Like I said, no wrong answers, man. All right. Yeah. I, I'm pretty much in the same boat with you, although Hammer is awesome. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. Card number two. What is your favorite Vincent Price film? I would say The Last Man on Earth, which is everywhere because there's a public domain thing that's on every collection and shows on all kinds of networks all the time. But gosh, I dig it. You know, I mean, I like the story. Uh, you know, it's been redone a million times. But, uh, but you know, I think him as the lonely guy, at least for part of it, works. Part of it, I suppose, is also because it's all about him. You know, he's the main guy. He's the last man. He's carrying that movie and with with, with very few co-stars. And yeah, I guess I'd say that. We switch you to the state capitol where His Excellency, the governor, is speaking from the executive mansion. Further, I have, in conjunction with the federal government, declared this state to be a disaster area. I was sent to keep you here until they come. To kill me. Vampires alive among the lifeless that make the night hideous with their inhuman cravings. If they are not destroyed in the flaming pits of hellfire or stick to the ground in the light of the sun... Will the unbelievable become real? A world of inanimate zombies by day? Irresistible, horrifying attackers by night? Can a zombie woman's hunger for love repopulate the earth? I love that one too. Of, of the three versions of that story that, that have been adapted, that is my favorite. I think it's got the most mood. Uh, Omega yeah. Man has the most vibe, but <laughs> Last One on Earth has the most mood. And I am legend we don't talk yeah. about. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sadly, right? Yeah, too bad. All right, Card- I think it's just a huge missed opportunity. It, it could have been. And then yeah. there are some moments, but okay. <laughs> Card number yeah. three. Uh, what classic monster movie that you've only ever seen like on TV or DVD would you want to see on the big screen? That's interesting. What did you and Chris, you and Chris saw, I think, Bride of Frankenstein recently. We did. And that was amazing. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and then we just saw King Kong, too, not too long ago. And that was oh, fantastic. Wow. I did see Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D on the big screen down in Eugene years ago. That was awesome. Anytime that plays anywhere near me, it, I, I've got to see it. It's like a requirement. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. The question is, what have I just seen on TV that I'd want to see on the big screen? Yes. Oh, boy. I don't know, man. Uh... Uh, no wrong answers no wrong answers oh boy I don't know <laughs> have you ever seen Fantastic Force of Jonathan Drake how's that There's you know it. what that would be fun though after having watched it again this morning I think it'd be a lot of fun you know why because I'd bring my friends and force them to watch it say look at this movie yeah. <laughs> 
All right, card number four. What two 1950s monster movies would make a great double feature? All right, Incredible Shrinking Man and uh, them, right? The giant ants. Or no, what's the one with the giant spiders? The uh, Tarantula? Tarantula, yeah, right? Because like there's a giant spider in Incredible Shrinking Man. Oh, there you go. And then there'd be a giant spider. There, there you go. It's not, not something I would have put together. I love it. I like it. <laughs> I like it. All right. The tenuous connection. Hey, you know, and they're both great films, and I think they're both directed by Jack Arnold. So there you go. You got a Jack Arnold double feature. There you go. Incredible Shrinking Man. I I love that movie. That's one of my favorites. It's really good. All right, final card, final question. Joe, who should or could have played Frankenstein's monster who didn't get a chance to? Everybody. Everybody did, right? I know in Universal, pretty much all the big heavies already did play Frankenstein. I know, right? I'm trying to think who didn't play him that would have. Uh, Well... Who is the guy in uh, in Plan Nine? The uh, big guy. Now I can't remember his name because all I can think of is George Animal Steel. Tor Johnson. Yes, Tor Johnson. Did Tor Johnson ever play? I don't think so, but I want to see that visual so bad. <laughs> there you go, man. I mean, he's you know, I mean, not that Frankenstein always has to be big and hulking, but but that would have been an interesting take on it. <laughs> would have been awesome. <laughs> Listeners, if I have any artists out there that, you know, have an afternoon free, would you whip up a drawing of Tor Johnson as Frankenstein's monster for me? Just, I would love to see that. There you go. <laughs> well, that's the classic five, Joe. How do you feel? Oh, I made it through. I- there you go. You survived. I really need some sound effects and some stingers for the classic five and the, yeah. <laughs> the evil that men do lives after them. Beware. 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 From beyond the grave comes blood-freezing horror as an ancient curse brings paralyzing terror to all who know the terrible secret of the four skulls of Jonathan Drake. I want to talk about the movie uh, that you recommended, actually. I have a survey on Monster Kid Radio's website. If you want to be a guest on the show, you know, let me know who you are and what you're into, what movie you'd want to recommend. And you recommended Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, which I thought was great because it's something that I hadn't seen in its entirety ever. I mean, I've seen bits and pieces. Uh-huh. So when I watched it to prep for this, it was the first time I watched it start to finish. Wow. What a lot of fun. That movie's great. You keep saying that you have to show, you know, make your friends sit down to watch it. What's the struggle? It's a great film. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, we're usually out doing stuff, I guess. Not, not so much watching movies. I, I mean, honestly, what had happened, it's funny because going back real quick to the conversation about KPTV that we had earlier in the show. Yeah. Do you get the Comet 
TV channel where you're at. Oh, yeah. And even yeah, if I don't, right. they stream on Roku. And I think you can even see oh, it on right. their website, too. You can watch it for free online. Yeah. You know, that's close, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. close. You know, you don't get the local commercials and the local announcers and stuff the way you used to. But, you know, they they are hooked up with such a library of B-movies and weird stuff. Um, it, I love that channel. And that that if anything, that gets close to a lot of the vibe of KPTV. It's like, here's these old movies that some are famous and some are forgotten. I mean, I have seen the crazy, you know, me, I love horror movies. I've seen a ton of stuff and I have seen tons of stuff on Comet I'd never heard of before or had heard of and never seen. They dig deep. They dig deep sometimes. There's some good stuff in their library. I, I tell people that the only thing Comet TV is missing is a horror host. I mean, really, that's all because that's the kind of movies that they show. True. And for me, right, I get me TV and Sven Gulli's on there. So, you know, it's it's like one channel click away. So that works for me. But you're right. I mean, if anything, that would that, that would fit on Comet. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the vibe. Who knows? Mm-hmm. One, one of these days, they might have something. Now, you listening, Comet? Because I know they listen. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So is that how you first? Anyway, what the reason I mentioned Comet real quick is because they were showing the Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake because it's part of the MGM library, which is part of I think they own part of Comet. So that's really a lot, a big part of what they mine for that programming. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, a, a pretty obscure movie, if, if you ask most people. And so the fact that they were showing it was cool. Well, my friend Rob actually had he's got a he's got a TiVo, believe it or not. It like will record stuff it thinks you will like based on what you've recorded before. And so <laughs> we were over at his house a couple weekends ago, and he was just scrolling through his DVR so we could find something to watch. And there it was. And I was like, oh, my God, dude, that movie's awesome. So we watched it, and that's how it happened. That's fantastic. But the first time you saw it was growing up watching one of these horror-hosted shows, it sounds like? Yeah. So, again, I grew up in New Jersey, and um, yeah, Dr. Shock out of Philadelphia was the horror host, Saturday afternoons. And yeah, so that's the first time I saw it. And I don't know exactly how old I was, but I would venture to guess I was 10, maybe even nine. So young and impressionable. And, you know, (laughs) even though I loved that stuff and watched it, this movie is so creepy. I mean, even when I just watch it now, it's not so much that it creeps me out, but I really think, God, you know, they showed up body with its head cut off they showed a guy you know they showed a severed head right there sitting on the table you know they showed this i mean it's it's right there in your face and i which i think is more than what was a lot of other stuff that was coming out in those days it just was like here it is here's a shrunken head here it is right in front of you here's a corpse with a head cut (laughs) off you know um for 1959 yeah yeah as a little kid it was like oh my god right plus the thing and this is funny because i've looked a little bit online you can't find a lot of people talking about this movie online but there are a few reviews here and there and it's funny because a couple of them mentioned having nightmares because of the floating skulls i mean there's several scenes in there where jonathan has this sort of waking nightmare where he sees these skulls floating in the air coming towards him and I count myself among those. I, I remember I had nightmares about these skulls floating towards me. Oh, wow. So, you know, that image alone, again, you know, you're talking about little kids being impressionable for, in the first place, but it worked. Whatever it is, it's iconic and it worked and stuck in my head. There is a lot of stuff in here that I did not expect to see. Uh, like you said, you see the decapitations, you see a couple of bodies without their heads on. Towards the end, when they're poking somebody in the, in the neck, you actually see the penetration just for a second. You see the skin kind of pop <laughs> as, the, as the blade's going in. And I, I actually had to stop and back it up and, and make sure I didn't just fill in the blank myself. It's there. I, know. I, I didn't expect that from this film. I mean, I know. No, 
later in the 60s, you know, especially with Night of the Living Dead and things like that, things start to change in terms of yes, what's acceptable right. on screen, what's normal on screen. But to have this in here, these are some pretty nightmarish images. Now, it's, it's relatively bloodless. Right. You know, we, we might see a few spots here and there, but nothing, you know, there's right. no... With the decapitation, it's not like there's a fountain of blood or anything like that. Right, Which, right. But it is pretty gruesome. I mean, and the image of the guy walking around with the, uh, his lips sewn shut. Yes, I was just going to say. <laughs> that was creepy. I mean, it's a bad enough to see it on a shrunken head, but to see it on a guy walking around. Yeah. And, it, you know, his, and they show his hands close up. He's got all super wrinkled makeup on his hands, too. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm assuming we're going to talk about the whole movie because that, that – can we talk about his shoes, his sandals? <laughs> <laughs> right i mean yeah again, again think about it like they, it's revealed eventually that he's got these sandals on made of human flesh right and uh when he gets injured he lets out this weird shriek which it's so funny because when my friends and i were watching it a couple weekends ago we ended up at us we ended up getting a little riffy on it right we were kind of making fun of some things mm-hmm. and that's just because it's a bunch of people sitting around on a saturday night and we were sort of making fun of it and I, you know i'm kind of cool with it because there's certainly parts that are that were fun to ridicule, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, but so much of it is kind of creepy. But that guy, like when he gets shot and, and makes that weird shrieking noise, you know, everybody kind of laughed. But I remember when I was little, that was really weird. I like, like freaky weird. Because it's just sort of this like, which sounds goofy, but man, it worked. It was like so otherworldly. Here's this guy. He's got his mouth sewn shut. He's killing people and cutting their heads off, putting it in a basket. And he makes this weird noise. It's it just unnerving, right? I, I would agree with you. In fact, <laughs> when I first heard it, when I was watching it, and I, I thought, did I miss something? Because I've seen that sequence before. Like I said, I've seen bits and pieces of this over the years. Uh, when, when that happened, I had to back it up again because I thought, okay, did a bullet bounce off a tree and hit a cat? I, oh, yeah, I don't understand because it's this high-pitched high kind of sound. Yeah. When I realized it actually is him, it does make it even more like you said, weird, I think is probably yeah, the best way weird. to put it. It's not spooky. It's not scary. It's weird in the sense that Lovecraft is weird. You know, it's just this weird yeah. sound. It's like, I don't. Yeah. Okay. That's the thing. Okay. <laughs> the funny thing is we, so that character's name is Zutai, mm-hmm. something like that. And we, so we started calling him suit and tie, which was funny because <laughs> he does not wear a suit and tie. Right. No. It's, <laughs> and yet, it's, yet he's got shoes made of human flesh, but I don't know why that's funny. We just found that hilarious. So we, kept calling him suit and tie you know there's no wrong way to enjoy a movie so you, yeah you don't have to justify sitting around making a few comments here and there so oh, as yeah. long as everybody's on the same page that's cool just don't right. do it in the theater while i'm there just well and thing. the other thing about all the sort of graphic stuff is they're putting the, the guy's severed head in a cauldron mm-hmm. and then the guy is working below the frame to actually cut the skin off of the skull right so i mean they were subtle on that mm-hmm but then you see the actual skull set down on a table. And then at a certain point, when the mad doctor is sewing up the mouth of the skin that they, he just cut off a skull, they cut, they show that, right? And it's obviously like a rubber mask. But he's like jerking the needle through the flesh. He's got to give it a little bit of pressure to get that through. And like I said, now, obviously, that's just sort of a rubber mask type of thing. But again, if you're really into that movie... Suddenly, they're showing the flesh that was just cut off of a boiled skull, and this guy is, like, shoving a needle through it <laughs> right there on screen. Yeah. And the the mask, the makeup effects, uh, Charles Gamora was the man behind all that, and he's he's primarily known as an ape man. You know, he was, he oh, was yeah. a real estate actor. The best in the business for my money. He's just one of the – 
amazing at what he did in his career. That he was doing actual makeup effects as well is, is pretty darn cool. And I don't see anything in this movie that makes me think that could have been done better. I mean, it all works in the sense of just everything going on in the film. It all kind of makes sense and fits. Nothing stands out. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, yeah, it's a rubber head, sure. But the rubber head is sculpted so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for the time, it, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's a short film. It doesn't run very long. It was actually yeah. released as a double feature with Invisible Invaders, which yeah. is a John Agar film that I adore. Yeah, I but, have seen that. But the vibe is so different. Invisible Invaders is, oh, yeah. is kind of like a fun little, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's got zombie stuff in it. But, you know, it's a fun, a more fun film. This one, yeah. it's creepy. It's straight. Yeah, it's. I'm trying to think if there's any real humor in this. I don't know that there is. Certainly not intentional. I don't. Everybody's serious. Everybody's super serious about it all. Everybody's playing it pretty straight. I can't think of any. Uh, The butler, manservant type could have maybe gone that route, but they they pulled him back too. They didn't do anything with him either. Yeah. To make Rogers. That's that guy's name. Yeah. 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 He's he's always super concerned. Mm -hmm. Really dig it. Really enjoy this film. Um, Like I said, it's a shorter film and. How would you describe it if you were to try to get somebody to watch this? What would you say the movie's about? Because it's, I, I think it's kind of hard to describe a little bit. It is. You know, as far as a synopsis goes, I mean, it's about this family dealing with a curse. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, it, if I was recommending it to someone, that would be someone that I know would react or would respond to me saying, yeah, there's this crazy guy with his mouth sewn shut and he's like chopping people's heads off. And then like they shrink <laughs> the head and you actually see it. I mean, I'd, I'd probably go through like, hey, you see the head like get put in a boiling oil, vat of boiling oil and they pour hot sand in it and there's shrunken heads. It's super weird, man. That's probably how I would describe it. <laughs> I guess that's kind of the selling points, right? Uh, it is so funny because watching it again, I, I was paying attention. I was making notes and paying attention to stuff and it, it is like the set design is pretty basic. I mean, it's mm-hmm. for the time, you know, you know, it's lit well, you know, it's obviously a back lot type of set thing, you know, and the, and the house has a lot of knickknacks in it as a lot of, a lot of houses and movies do back then, you know, they've got a mantle with a whole bunch of things on it and, you know, like rather than plain walls, but, but there's not that much to it. The one thing I made note of was they tell the story about the ancestor who goes up the Amazon and encounters the Indians and this and that and the other thing, they don't show it. They don't go to like a flashback with stock footage from some other movie or go to a flashback where they have a set with a boat and, you know, some fake palm trees and stuff, um, which I'm assuming is pretty much a budgetary concern, right? I mean, you, you could put that in there. Right. Universal uh, would have done that, but yeah. But I don't know that it would have made it any better. I think it's fine that he's telling this story and you're envisioning this in your head while you see Jonathan and his daughter's faces just so dire and serious listening to this rather fantastic story. And yet this is the heart of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I just thought, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting that they probably told it instead of showing it for budgetary concerns, but it actually kind of works because they're in a mausoleum for Christ's sake, telling this story about how the family curse started. I think that's uh, a credit to the director and the way they put it together. Edward L. Kahn was the director who also directed Visible Invaders. Um, You could have easily just turned that into an info dump kind of scene. The guy's going to tell you a story about what happened and this is why this is happening. But because they keep cutting back to the people listening to the story, um, it it gives it more weight. And it works for me on that level. I mean, I didn't need the flashback. In fact, I would think if there's a flashback in this like that, it would have lost some for me. I don't know if the movie would have been as effective. Yeah, because part of it is, and I made a note of this too, you're in just a few locations. I mean, you're in the house, 
where you know they had a wake in the living room, right? So I mean, even <laughs> as as nice as that house is, they did manage to get a scene in there where there's a coffin with a decapitated body in it in that <laughs> on the, in that room, right? As far as being creepy, they've got a hearse picking up the body. They got a hearse delivering the uh, the coffin. You know, then mm-hmm. there's a mausoleum in the backyard, right? So just from the that sort of location, those are all a little creepy, right? You know, granted, there's 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 a police station, and a couple other spots, you know, and, then, and then there's the mad doctor's house where he has a, a dungeon, you know, in his basement. He's got this dungeon thing where he shrinks heads. So even just the sort of location wise, everything's a little creepy. Mm-hmm. And actually, if they took you outside of that to say, meanwhile, or way back when down in the Amazon, uh, it potentially does take you out of that. I don't know, possibly claustrophobic type of setting where you're not in that creepy space anymore. You're, you know, somewhere else. And again, that's got to be part of it's got to be budget. You know, they can't exactly. afford a funeral home set, so they do it in the home, and, and that sort of. And I don't know if that's what the consideration was. Whatever it was, it works so well because it's all contained. You know, the mad scientist setup is not that far from the Drake home because the guy. It's not like the guy who's collecting the heads can get in, get on a bus and you know, <laughs> right. you go downtown and get into the mad scientist house. He's on foot in yeah. human soul, human flesh sandals. So <laughs> he's on foot, on foot. Yes, <laughs> you're right though. Yeah, he's got to run, run to that other house. So there's this curse on the Drake family for what they did in the Amazon many, many years ago, and they're all supposed to lose their heads and and have their skulls. I don't know if I completely understood the curse, to be honest, just that something was going to happen with their heads. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's as I recall, you know, there was an expedition. Part of the expedition was was kidnapped by this tribe and they beheaded him. And, and so in retaliation, the rest of the expedition went and slaughtered all the, the Indians for, for, for killing their guy, except the witch doctor escaped and he put a curse on the family. And the curse was something about, yeah, when each of the men turns 60, they're going to die. The way, and the way they die is they get, you know, stabbed and killed, and and their head gets cut off and turned into a shrunken head. That's a weird curse, but hey, you know that's what the movie's about. And and really, it's less a curse and more of a just long premeditated murder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, then they, and then you've got you know these these people are like living a long time to see this curse through. I mean, that's and that's part of the movie, especially at the end, mm-hmm. is that you know these these guys have been hanging around hanging around this planet for years and years and decades and decades, sort of waiting for the time when they could finish this out. The the movie starts pretty much with a beheading and and it's a little botched at first. I mean, they they kill him and then the guy keeps getting walked in on (laughs) every time he's about to get down to business. Somebody walks in. Right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rogers always comes in with hot milk to interrupt everything. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, character that's doing the head, decapitation suit tie or suit and tie as you said played by paul wexler now obviously you know he's not amazonian or native american or whatever but uh he's had a long career yeah going back to you know 1950 to begin with and and still active up through uh the late 70s when he passed away and apparently he is from portland oh really i did not know that wow so what i was going to say was uh that the music was great, and you know, oh, not that yeah. it's unlike music that was in movies of its type during then. But what I noticed was it was orchestral, but they also had an organ in there, you know. And and so a lot of times you'll have orchestral music and a lot of like meandering 
uh, clarinet type of music under a lot of the movie, you know, a lot of those movies from the forties, fifties, et cetera. Yes. Um, but this one also had kind of the creepy Phantom of the Opera organ type of sound in there, which I thought was cool, uh, that they use both. And of course, when, like on shocking scenes, they would have the big horn stab, like "baba." Well, yeah, <laughs> um, which again was was typical. But I, for whatever reason, I just sort of picked up on the fact that oh, more than just the usual like orchestra music, they've got that organ going on in here too. I'm glad that you were the first person to bring up the score because normally I'm the one who's like, I love film scores, and this is what. Yeah. Thank you for for taking the shot on that. Uh, Paul Dunlap <laughs> was the composer on that, and he did a lot of work uh, in the 50s and 60s on genre films. He did some other work too, but uh, I I have to say I have a lot of Paul Dunlap in my uh, film score collection. I'm a big fan of what he does, and. Yeah, he was um, more than just like, let's put in some stock music. I mean, he really worked to try to make some of these music uh, pieces. I mean, even stand on their own. I'd buy this as a score. If it was on CD, I'd buy it in a minute. Yeah. I mean, I have several of those monstrous movie compilations. Oh, yeah. So. What David Schechter does is Godzilla's work. I mean, that, that's amazing that he yeah, puts all that yeah, stuff out. I don't, I don't think this one's been done, but. Uh, probably not. <laughs> I mean, you know, I got this on, uh, like I said, MG. I mean, I guess it was, I mean, I can't remember what it says at the beginning. It's some other some company, but apparently it was under contract for United Artists is what I've read. Okay. And then of course MGM owns it now. And I got this on a, on their midnight movies, DVDs that they were doing back in the I don't know, early two thousands. Maybe I can't remember that MGM was putting out, um, where they were doing like double feature mm-hmm. DVDs. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's this and voodoo Island with Boris Karloff. Oh, okay. And, and, but then in more recent years, shout factory has put out a Blu-ray, I believe of the same thing. They had, uh, what did I just say? Voodoo Island and Forest Calls of Jonathan Drake. Mm-hmm. And they also put it out on a four pack that was those two movies and two other things from Shout Factory. So it's out there. And that's actually the exciting for, thing for me because for the longest time, you know, no one had heard of this movie. It was like everybody heard of Dracula and the Frankenstein, et cetera. And you start getting down to the lesser known movies. And this was something that most people hadn't heard of when I would talk about it. To see that it actually comes out on you know those formats and then gets out there is is cool because hopefully more people will see it or at least if they hear about it there it's easier for them to track down it's 20 bucks on amazon on blu-ray from shout factory it looks like it's a bare bones release it's not like commentaries or anything like that but it does say it's got a new high definition transfer so that that might be fun to check out i do not have the blu-ray when i watched it it was uh, streaming through amazon through prime video so you can see it that way too I just have that DVD from MGM. And I'll make sure, again, link in the show notes if you want to buy it for yourself and help support MKR along the way. I, I did a little bit of research. Okay. And from what I found, I mean, it was interesting. Is it Edward Kahn? Is that how you say last, his yeah, last name? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I like you were saying Invisible Invaders, uh, She Creature, Invasion of the Saucer Man, tons of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it looks like he directed a bunch of Little Rascal shorts early on. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. There was something about Waldo and then something about Spanky, and they were all listed as short. I'm like, wait a minute. And and then there was one alfalfa something or other. And then I realized, wow, there's like 10 or 15 shorts here. These are all Little Rascals episodes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, we've never really talked about the Little Rascals here on Monster Kid Radio <laughs> until now. That's That's cool. Just interesting to, to see that that's uh, that he did a bunch of those. I mean, this guy did a ton of stuff, obviously. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. He'd been acting, active for a while. Yeah, I'm just looking at a couple of these titles right now. Going Fishing, he did, which was a our gang short. Uh, oh, how cool is that? Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, but then you mentioned some of the other genre films, and, and I love She Creature. I think it's so good. It the Terror from Beyond Space, oh, right? He directed that one. That one is so good. I talked about that one with Which Scott really Morris a while back. Yeah. Man, that and that Blu-ray is awesome, by the way. Oh, the blue yeah. that came out. It's bare bones again, but it's it's pretty darn cool. And Creature with the Adam Brain with my man Richard Denning. I mean that which I great. I have to see. I have to admit I have not seen that. I've heard about it forever, but I need to seek that oh, out. Really? Oh man, highly yeah. recommended. Um, yeah, you know, kind of sort of a zombie movie that actually does involve the brain a little bit more than most of this era. I mean, obviously Romero did the brain thing later in '68, but oh. I mean, there's some brain stuff going on, which is fascinating stuff. And Richard Denning can do no wrong, as far as I'm concerned. Cool, cool. So uh, yeah, wow, yeah, he had one heck of a career. Um, just did <laughs> yeah. a lot of work up through the early '60s. And I mean, I, I don't feel like he ever just phoned it in. I mean, there's so much in these movies that are just, you know, really, really good and creepy. He put yeah. some great images together for us. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about it, Terror Beyond Space. I mean, so much of it is, I mean, ratches up the tension. And, uh, you know, sometimes people give it a bad rap, like when you actually see the monster. It's like, well, okay, we'll think of when it was made, right? That was pretty effective at the time. Right. Um, but but so much of the stuff building up to that, you know, where it's either just making noise or it's you know banging on the on the hatch or whatever, is just pure you know theatrical suspense that's being created <laughs> by the way you're shooting it and the reactions of people and the sound, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And talk about a claustrophobic set. I mean, yeah, it's just right. you know you're trapped. Yeah, you know, no, yeah, yeah. It's it's a solid flick. You know, I'm looking at Khan's uh, filmography, and I know that makes for exciting podcasting while we're actually recording. <laughs> the last film he's credited with is a 1962 film called Beauty and the Beast, and I thought, well, how does that fit in with our gang and these genre films? Apparently, it's a werewolf picture, and I've never seen it. I need wow. to see this thing. <laughs> All right, see, we're still learning something every day. See, and that's that's what I love about talking with people about uh, these movies is that eventually a conversation will lead us to something that we either didn't know before or a movie we've never seen. And we can all link it back to just having this shared love for this stuff, you know, and and I I love talking with other monster kids and fans of this stuff. You said you took a bunch of notes. Is there anything that we haven't touched on yet in four skulls? You (laughs) You know, I was just looking. The only thing was Dr. Zurich. Uh-huh. The the bad guy. He's got these eye bags that are disturbing, right? I mean, <laughs> was that makeup or was that well, him? See, I don't know. I mean, here's the weird thing, right? I have long thought, God, that's just that guy. Unfortunately, has these really sort of sharp eye bags, and that combined with his voice made him really creepy, right? I mean, he's supposed to be creepy, mm-hmm. but it's interesting because at the end of the movie, there is an angle where he's laying on the ground, and you're sort of looking more up at him. And it's weird because the skin on his face around like his nose and his mouth and even his jawline looks fairly smooth. Mm -hmm. And then all the wrinkles are up by his eyes and on his forehead, which made me think for a moment, I wonder if that was makeup, right? Uh, It may just be gravity that, you know, since he's laying down, all the the jowly stuff just all gets pulled up, right? But uh, I don't know. I don't know that that was makeup. It's just, I mean, I'm not trying to make fun of the guy, but he just – it just sort of made him look even more sinister. He had a he had a definite look, and this is from the biography of him on the Internet Movie Database. Oh. Uh, he excelled at playing the suave, well-bred villain who could kill an army or start a war with a certain air of upper-class disdain, as if all of this effort was beneath him. Yeah, I yes. yeah, that's that's him. That's his face and his exactly. look. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the guy did a lot of work. He appeared in several episodes of Thriller, uh, the Boris Karloff show, which is awesome. Um, yeah. He was really good in this. I loved his performance in this film. Yeah. 
Because it, it is, to, he is sort of aloof, like, no, no, the Amazonian tribe, that would be uh, indicative of them, yes. <laughs> I, of course I know that. I know everything about this. Yeah, but <laughs> when he's confronted, how did you know he did yeah. not? It's like, because he, it's when he tells the, the investigator, you're going to die. I mean, this is kind of, it's not a threatening, like, ha, 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 I've got you now. It's just, and you will never leave this house again. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, right? it's flat. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> So he's one of the standout actors in this. Um, Hen- yeah. Henry Daniel, or Daniel, fantastic actor. Uh, I think most of the roles are pretty solidly filled by their actors and actresses. Valerie French is our female lead, although she doesn't do much in the film. She's not necessarily put in harm's way very often. I was going to say, but, yeah, you know. the nice thing is it was, she wasn't hysterical. Right. You know, she, was, she was unnerved and... And was was muddling through amongst all this death that was happening around her, but you know she did she wasn't put in a position of being sort of the hysterical damsel that needed to be, which was nice safe. to see. It just it just that didn't come up in this this particular story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was glad to see that. And then Paul Cavanaugh played the uh, the first Drake, I believe, who was killed. And again, he had a very long career, and this may have been one of the, if not the last film role for him. We also noticed that uh, there's a good amount of smoking. Not everybody was smoking in there, but uh, but like, there's a a point where the the cop and the and the daughter Allison sit in in the police car to talk, and and of course, you know, the first thing the cop does is light up and uh, <laughs> fill the car yeah. with smoke. Yeah. The other thing that was interesting was that at a certain point, Jonathan is talking to his daughter, starting to tell her about you know, you wonder why I studied the occult, and and eventually goes and shows her the mausoleum and tells her about the family curse. But he's talking to her in the living room. She's sitting on the couch and he's leaning over from the back of the couch with a lit cigarette in his hand. And the ash is so long that it's uncomfortable because it's just like, oh man, that ash is going to fall on the couch. He just keep, His hand is sort of hanging over there and he keeps talking and talking and talking. It's like, move your hand, dude. You're going to set the couch on fire. That's a very small thing, but just something that now, of course, I can't not see it because right. I've noticed it. Now, now it's like, oh, there's that cigarette that's about to set everything on fire. I was going to say, anybody who hasn't seen the movie or even if you have and you go back and rewatch it, if they've listened to this, now that's what they're going to focus I know. on. I'm it's sorry if I ruined it. Ash. You're taken out of that scene like, oh, there's that cigarette, man. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed watching it and I'm so glad that you brought it up because it's one that I've been wanting to visit on MKR for a while. I've played the trailer a few times. I like the trailer a lot. Um, but it's it's a solid little movie. And listeners, if you haven't seen it, don't think we've ruined the movie. There's a lot to offer here. We haven't even talked about what happens to the Mad Doctor at the end and what we find out about him. And, yeah. and I don't know if I want to mention it. Uh, I don't no, want to spoil I, it. I think if we have to. I mean, that's why I was sort of saying early on, or we could talk about the whole movie. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was cool. I, I think you're, you mentioned a couple times that it's short. I mean, it's 71 minutes yeah. or something. Like, which, you know, is not unusual for films at that time. But I think that works because they just stuff all kinds of stuff in there. There, There's a few scenes where it's a bit expository, but not much. And, and, you know, then it just pops up with another weird thing. Like, Oh my God, look at the fingerprints on this skull. And no, here's the, here's the guy with his mouth sewn shut again. (laughs) Oh, the fingerprints, the fingerprints getting boring. You know, some other weird thing happens. The fingerprints. I mean, (laughs) how cool were those? And, you know, and then to figure out the fingerprints, they've got to look in the books of witchcraft that the, that Jonathan Drake had or, or whatever from his studies. So yeah, what, even that, like I said, it, the more I watch it, that you pick up little things here and there like, man, this is really just talk full of weird stuff. Yes. It's got a great pace. Uh, it's got some good music. It's got some great performances. 
highly recommended. I, I think people need to see this thing. So, Joe, thank you for bringing it to Monster Kid Radio and in our attention this week. Like I said, and you said, you know, so much of this stuff, a lot of times your connections to movies have to do with when you saw it, right. how old you were, the situation. And that certainly is the case with this movie for me. But I do, you know, it's good to hear you say, yeah, it's pretty solid because it, I think it is it, it, more than just something that made an impression on me in, in later years. You know, you look at what it is in the, for when it was made. And yeah, it's, it's an entertaining horror movie for sure. Definitely. Well, Joe, I think we could have plenty to talk about in the future. So let's not uh, dance around each other so much next time before the next time I have you on the show. We'll find another movie to chat about um, and, and, of course, talk more about some of your releases coming up. If listeners want to learn about that, they can go to SkullFaceAstronaut.com. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Where you can buy his movies. You can watch his movies. Uh, if you're in the area and maybe want to be in one of his movies, he's got a way for you to maybe apply for something like that. Uh, and you said you don't do the zine anymore, but you still do an e-newsletter. I do. Dr. Yeah. Squids. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, uh, I do a blog and I do a newsletter so you can sign up for the newsletter and that's just, you know, mm-hmm. it's a way to keep people hip to the various projects I'm working on and any screenings that come up. I got a screening. There's a place in Iowa city of all places that has a, a small theater that has a weekly grindhouse show on Wednesday nights. And they actually included beyond the wall of fear last year. They're going to do uh, blood Creek woodsman coming up here in April. And, oh, wow. uh, and then there's a place in Philadelphia, actually, another kind of small theater that does interesting series uh, that I'm trying – they're trying to, to line something up to show something. So, yeah, like I, I mentioned, all this stuff in the email newsletter. Plus, you know, sometimes I'll share things that other filmmakers are doing that I'm, I'm either involved in or hear about. So, yeah. Yeah, you just get, go to the site, check it out. Like I said, there's, there's convention diaries that are pretty extensive. There's photos and trailers. You know, I mean, so you don't have to go buy anything, but there's hopefully a lot, a lot of fun stuff to look at. I haven't been to Crypticon in years, but I know you go every year, and I look forward to that time of year because you end up taking so many photos <laughs> on the way there, and then they're at the convention. It's a fun little, like you said, it's, it's a convention diary. It's oh. a way to experience Crypticon through the eyes of filmmaker Joe Sherlock, and it's a blast. Well, we have fun. I had, We were just talking last night. It, this will be the 10th year that we've gone. Oh, wow. They, it's actually their 11th convention. We didn't go to, we didn't know, he'd know about the first one, but... But yeah, this will be the 10th year we're going. So it's a big old road road trip we, me and my friends look forward to every year. Fantastic. I wish you the best of luck with the premiere. Don't know if I'm going to be going up to Crypticon or not, but I wish you the absolute best of luck. Uh, I can't wait to hear how it goes, and I can't wait to see the movie myself at some point. Well, I will say this. We are, we meaning the Monos team, we're working on maybe a few other screenings. So there will be the world premiere of Crypticon Seattle. We want to definitely do a few other screenings here and there. Um, so stay tuned. That's the best <laughs> I can say. We're, we, I don't know where anything will be, but, but we definitely want to do some other things. Well, please keep me posted because even, um, you know, even if it's not in the local area, I would love to talk about it on the show and let people who are not in this area know where they can see it. If it's, right. you know, sure. I'd love to help promote as much as I can to spread the word. We'll do. All right. Thanks again, Joe. Really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Rock and roll. You know how sometimes I say that I used to think I was going to be a filmmaker when I grew up and well, that never really happened. I'm not a filmmaker now. And I'll tell you the real reason why I'm not a filmmaker is because Joe has got the coolest name for his production company and there's no way I could possibly top Skullface 
Astronaut. That is so cool. Skullfaceastronaut.com is where you're going to find everything you need to know about what Joe Sherlock is up to. You can watch several of his movies online on demand right now. You can buy some of the DVDs as well. This is where he posts everything that he's got going on, all of his upcoming projects. There's a news blog, a contact link, and a way to get signed up on that newsletter that he mentioned. On the website, you can find pictures of the various productions, including several pictures with Jackie Ray Naaman Jones. Because, well, again, that whole Monos Returns thing that I can't wait to see. I don't think I'm going to get up to Crypticon this year, which means I'm going to miss the world premiere. I know I'll get a chance to see Monos Returns at some point. But if you're going to go, I would love for you to let me know what you thought of the film and the whole shebang. And even if I don't hear it from you, I'm sure I'm going to hear it from Joe because we're going to have him back on the show down the line. Thanks again, Joe, for being part of Monster Kid Radio. Preacher with the Atom Ray. A motion picture shot full of thrills based on scientific facts described in leading national magazines. You'll be hypnotized. You'll be terrorized. You'll be paralyzed. See a dead man come from beyond the grave. See Columbia Pictures startling. Creature with the Atom Brain. Introducing Archivos, the story mapping and development tool for today's storytellers. With Archivos, storytellers don't just document the characters, places, and events of their stories. They define the relationships between those story elements and then visualize those connections through unique story mapping interfaces like the living map, the timeline, and the story web. By giving storytellers the ability to see and interact with that network of story elements, Archivos helps ensure story comprehension and continuity while providing a dramatic and engaging way for fans to explore the story worlds they love. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos. Your stories illuminated. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the earth. Plan 9 from outer space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampira, and Thor Johnson as the walking dead. Turn off your electrode gun! No! No! Stop him, Dennis! I can't get it! It's jammed! Stop him, you fool! Bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ships. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now. I don't have 
any voicemail this time around, but if you wanted to call and leave us a voicemail, you can do so by calling 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Or you can send us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com and maybe something like this will happen with your email. We gotten some positive responses to having my lovely wife, Brenda, join the show to read the emails. Uh, a little bit of deja vu, because that's initially how we roped you into my old zombie movie podcast. Is you <laughs> just started with the feedback section and slowly incorporated you into uh, the podcast overall. I, I don't know if that's going to happen here or not. I think I have to be careful um, about overcommitting. Yeah. If I'm not feeling good, um, it just it can't. Right. Then because it ends up being another um, expectation, another thing that I didn't get done. Right. And that has an effect on me. So, um, but I can do it right now. Yeah. So, so we're not going to say this as an everyday thing every time, but when she's available and we have feedback, uh, Brenda will read some emails like this email that we got from Dominique in regards to last week's episode. In fact, all the emails, I believe, are about last week's episode and the topic. I forgot how good you are at segueing. It's not very good if I have to point it out. And, and I tend to do that every single time. So thank you for doing it this time. <laughs> Now, in the conversation with Joe earlier, uh, I did the exact same thing. I was like, hey, look at that segue. You know, we need a sound effect, actually. Somebody needs to go out and record the sound of somebody on a segue. You can't just let it ride because you're just so proud. Of exactly. That That's right. So I pointed, I bring it, yeah. Okay. Email from Dominique. I have to tell you. Uh oh. I hear about Dominique all the time. She's awesome. Uh-huh. She made the tingler. I know that I hung up here. Yeah. Dominique's cool. So now I get to read her words. There you go. All right. Hello, Dominique. (laughs) And she says, Hi, Derek. Another great episode about an overlooked movie. Jim Beard was fun to listen to, and I hope we hear more from him. I actually like Dracula's Daughter, but not for the reason most people do. As I wrote on my blog last April, the makers of this movie unintentionally created the perfect allegory for the victimization of women. I won't drag everyone too deeply into that here, but it explains why when you and Jim were talking about having sympathy for some characters, and I started fuming to myself that I had no sympathy for anyone in the movie except Maria. Yeah, sure. No, no, it's a, Mar- Mar- Countess Mara. Yeah, that's fine. Cool. Maria? Yep. Maya? No. No? No. Maria. Okay. The discussion about Sandor got me thinking too. In particular, the question about if Maria could have accomplished what she wanted without Sandor. The thing is, I think she could have, because what she really wanted was to be human, and Sandor had a vested interest in keeping Maria a vampire. Just like a man, always keeping him. You have to cut that. No, no, it's fine. That's what we talked about in the last episode, too. No, when Jim and I talked about it, it was, you know, Sandor is the real villain here, because he's the one that is making sure. I'm just, yeah. I'm having flashbacks to some feedback we got about being man haters. <laughs> oh, back during that? the zombie podcast? Yes. Yeah, this is different. No, because it's it's really true. It, it, in but this not, film, not all men, just this particular man and Maria. Will you just read the email? <laughs> well, it could be taken as a generalization, just like a man. Is no, just like a Sandor. How about there that? Just like a Sandor. Just Hashtag like Sandor. just like Sandor. <laughs> so he has a vested interest in keeping this woman a vampire. Clearly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. He succeeds in the end, and I don't think Maria actually accepts her curse. I think she's lashing out at a world that has tried and succeeded at keeping her in her place. How old is this? When was this movie? 34? 
35? Yeah, mid, mid, early to mid-30s. Yeah. I'm also not entirely convinced that Maria was a vampire. We never see her bite anyone, and she goes to a psychologist to cure her. How can we be sure that she is and hasn't just been gaslit into thinking she's a vampire? <laughs> oh, the Sandor man. Hashtag just like Sandor. <laughs> Goodness. Look at Maria. <laughs> Maria thinks she might be a vampire. She goes to a psychologist. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's not the only time it happens. In House of Dracula, Dracula's like, I'm tired of being a vampire. I want you to cure me. He goes to a doctor. A doctor or a psychologist? Uh, I think he's a doctor. That, he might be a psychiatrist. I'd have to double check. Darn, I have to watch House of Dracula again. <laughs> I mean, that's that's amazing. Yeah. That's a really interesting detail. Dracula's daughter is fascinating. I think you should watch it. See, it's just like MOZ. <laughs> just like the zombie oh, podcast. No. <laughs> just kidding it wasn't terrible no uh where was i okay gaslighting okay if anything i think this is a movie more people should see because it's easily one of the most beautiful vampire movies ever made the costuming alone is wonderful anyway keep up the good work so uh i'm not sitting in front of the computer right now so i can't pull up her blog and the post or whatever but i will make sure there's a link in the show notes to dominique's blog it's fascinating reading right now she's currently doing a series where she's going through ingrid pitt uh appearances uh she just posted something about dr shivago which is kind of neat completist and therefore had to watch something that she wasn't super excited exactly Ingrid Pitt. Yes. Yeah. Which, and actually, uh, she and I were talking at one point about having her come on the show and we were going to do a top three Ingrid Pitt movies thing. Like we do the top threes here on the show. Just haven't made it happen yet. It was going to be part of a woman in horror thing that I was going to try to do last month, but just right. didn't come together. Just like a Sandor. <laughs> Prioritize Woman's Month. Uh, Dracula's Daughter is so good. And I actually thought Dominique did not like the movie. So I was a little, she kind of he sent me a message ahead of time to kind of warn me. Like, I'm, I'm sending you an email. Well, this is great. I, yeah. I I think she's right. The movie is beautiful. This was, and, and I mentioned this last week. Jim and I talked about this last week. This was in the era of Universal when these movies were still big deals and they weren't B movies. So they really did. Granted, didn't spend as much money as they did on the original Dracula, but they really did try to make it look lush and big and beautiful. And it really is fascinating. I, I would love to get your point, your take on it, Brian. Maybe someday. Yeah. But we haven't even finished Stranger Things 2. <laughs> Shh. Don't tell anybody. We are so we are so bad. There are like four or five different series on Netflix that we've started and watched the first two episodes and like, we'll get back to it. it. And there's just no time. Stranger Things 2, uh, Mindhunter for me, The Dark, uh, Altered Carbon. The, one that was the, the Dark was the German yeah. one. Yeah. Yes. So, anyway. What was the other, the last one? Uh, the one we just started, Altered Carbon. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah. In a different way. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I would assume so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dracula's Daughter's better, but, you know. Mm, sure. Okay. What next? Dominique's awesome. And yes. did I tell you, have I talked about this? Dominique is a go. She's definitely going to Monster Bash this year. Oh, neat. She is going. Mm. It's going to be dope. going to be so dope. I'm excited that you're so excited. I'm excited to see her freak out and fangirl over Victoria Price. That's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs> you just don't want to feel so bad for all your freak out fangirling. Well, well but wait a minute. <laughs> Just as I'm sure it was a kick for people to watch me meet Julie Adams for the yes. first time and, and lose yes. about 20 pounds of nervous sweat as I was waiting to speak to her. It was an awful setup. Yeah. 
Uh, but um, yeah, and just Victoria Price, who I've actually uh, heard back from. I shot her an email yeah. and uh, told her, you know, I'm going to be at Monster Bash when I have a table set up, and I would love to make sure we have a chance to, to chat yeah. and catch up and do an interview. And every time you guys cross paths, yeah, well, makes it's only been once. No, she was here, right? Yeah, she was here, and that's when I met her. But you had met her before. No. Oh, I made up in my mind that you had this whole long relationship with her. No. <laughs> Sounds like most of it was in your head. <laughs> <laughs> or your head. My head. <laughs> yeah. No, Victoria Price is totally cool. And uh, she said that yeah, she would love to do an interview while I'm at Monster, or Monster Bash with her. And uh, she's sure I can record her presentation. I don't know what presentation she's going to do. If it's the one that she did at the horror convention a couple years back, it's awesome. Um, yeah. But depending on what she ends up doing, it'll be pretty neat. Should you reach out to her son? You're speaking of Julie Adams. Oh. You have confused the two. And Julie Adams is the one you've seen a few times? Yes. Julie Adams oh. is my 50s girlfriend. Oh. Victoria Price oh. is... a relationship with her. Oh, yes, I do. Uh, That's still mostly in my head, but... Terrible wife for somehow mixing up your girlfriend and your, and your f- <laughs> friend. And Vincent Price's daughter. Yes. It happens all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's okay. I, I know they're each special in their unique way. <laughs> but you're right. I probably ought to reach out to Julie Adams' you know, son just to kind of check in. And say hi. Yeah, just yeah. say, hey, tell your mom I'm thinking about her. <laughs> Why don't you go to the next email before it gets creepy? <laughs> go Next email. Okay. Next email. <laughs> okay. Just scroll down. Did you already do that? Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. Man, I'm so glad people liked Jim Beard. You were so excited after having him on the show. Oh, he was awesome. And he was excited. Yeah. And I'm so glad that other people felt like it was good because that means you guys can do it again. Oh, yeah. Well, I, it's already something I need to do. All right. Yeah. So, great episode about a great film. Jim Beard is a great guest, and you guys have solid chemistry. Yes. Great. I didn't hear the other side <laughs> of the conversation, but just hearing you talk about it, it seems like. Just one of those. You guys have got that thing. What, what do you mean? You didn't, you didn't listen to the show? No. Silly. <laughs> 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 wow. Wow. No, that's okay. I know. I know. I know. I have limited energy and capacity. I know. Jim was awesome. Yeah, Jim was okay. super cool. Well, and it sounds like people think you guys have good chemistry. Yeah. Um, big thanks to Frank Schuldiner for kind of making that happen, making the introduction and, and making that happen. That was amazing. Happy to hear some talk about Sir Graves Gastly, who's the reason I am the second generation monster kid I am today. Yes. His job as a horror host introduced my mom to these movies, and she introduced me to them. Or I should read it how it was written. And she introduced them to me. On to the actual <laughs> film. I was floored when I watched this film a few weeks ago. In fact, I may have been the progenitor of the Facebook post you were talking about early in this episode. It starts off directly after the last movie, and I love how it incorporates the aftermath of the original film. Seeing the police wander through Carfax Abbey in complete bewilderment was truly compelling. Is that supposed to be said somehow Carfax? No, you said it right. Isn't that like I know okay. it's it's difficult. It's actually something that I've struggled with with a project I'm working on. I want to include the name Carfax because it references Dracula, but every time I mention it, the people I talk to go, "Oh, oh. buying a used car." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Seeing the police wander through. Oh, I already read that part. <laughs> Wait, no, I didn't. Did I? 
seeing the police wander through Carfax Abbey in complete bewilderment, right? Is that what it was? Yes, it was yeah. truly compelling. Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing is great, and I was really happy to see him back in the fight against evil. The film surprisingly passes the Bechtel test, which for a movie made in the 30s, that's insanely rare. Gloria Holden is great in the lead role, and I like it a lot more than the other Dracula sequel. Anyway, I could drone on and on about this film. Thanks for all the hard work you put in weekly, and I can't wait to see what's next. Sincerely, Andrew, do we do use last name? It's Andrew Roebuck. He's been a guest on the show before. Uh, okay. So, okay. yeah, I, I try not to use last names unless they, they say it's okay or they've been on the show before and we've used our last name. Andrew was on the show. Uh, he's up in Canada. He contributes to Bloody Good Horror, and he was on the show here uh, to talk about the original Gamera film, and it was amazing. Uh, and i uh, got to have Andrew back. Good. So many people I want to have back on the show. I know there's not enough time. It really isn't. But you can't do more because... <laughs> well, health well, and other things, real life. You're having a hard time. We're having a hard time getting everything done. Um, so uh, the takeaway here is that uh, people seem to like this movie. Now, uh, Christopher, I think it's Christopher Page from Orphaned Entertainment, uh, did recently watch this one and Son of Dracula on Facebook and commented on how Son of Dracula is not that great. Now, I, I personally, and, and if I'm getting that wrong, I'm sorry, I misappropriated that or mis... Assigned. assigned that to you, misappropriated, really, <laughs> that I misassigned that to you, Chris. But uh, Son of Dracula, I actually really, really like. Uh, I think it's a fascinating movie, but not because of Lon Chaney. I think he's an adequate Dracula-ish kind of guy. Count Alucard, actually, is what his name is, because Alucard backwards is Dracula. Mm-hmm. But the women in that film are... are really interesting to me. Uh, and that's one of the things I like about this Dracula's daughter too, is that the women are so real characters. They're fleshed out. They're not damsel in distress types. What made that happen? Who wrote it? Why? I have no idea. And, you know, originally Bela Lugosi was going to have a role in the film. And, and I talked again, going back to last week's episode, that if Lugosi was in the movie, it would have been a completely different thing because it, so much of it would have been focused on Lugosi. And I love Lugosi and I want more Lugosi in the world, but there's something about this film and the character. And like Dominique was saying, she may not have even been a full-on vampire. These stories where um, women are fully fleshed characters in that time period and it passes the Bechdel test and it's maybe a commentary about the role society puts the woman in. It would seem odd to me that a woman wasn't part of writing this or creating this? It's something that I want to go back and learn a little bit more about. I tried to give myself a crash course on the movie when it was decided that Jim and I were going to talk about it. But of course, like you were saying earlier, not having enough time to do everything that I'd want to do. So I didn't come across anything like that. I'd be interested to know, though. Uh, for listeners who don't know, what is the Bechdel test? So Wikipedia says... Wikipedia, this is... this is. Awesome podcasting when we just read off a website. Asks whether a work of fiction features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. The requirement that the two women must be named is sometimes added. About half. Wow. So, so half. does Dracula's daughter pass the Bechdel test? Uh, I, I, I get about each other. They are their own entities. They have names. They, they are. They are named. They are their own entities, but they don't have a lot of interaction with each other. There's still Dracula's daughter is trying to – there's the implication that she wants a relationship with the psychologist, that there's this, this attraction beyond heal me. When the two women interact, 
are they talking about something other than Sandor, the psychologist? Nah, yeah. I mean, they're a little catty toward each other. Well, especially the psychologist assistant or nurse or whatever her role is. Um, she's kind of catty. And I think there's some jealousy there. But it's not. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So you could say that these yeah. two women, they they talk to each other in some way. And it isn't about a man. Yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah. I, in this, yeah. Interesting. For the 30s. Yeah. Really interesting. And an awareness of the woman's, you know, being forced into a role. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. All right. It could just as easily be a, a man who wrote it, who yeah. has, you know, had that awareness as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Next email. I think this one is from Micah, who is the person whose long email you read a while back, which I think was the first email you read on the show. Uh, Micah did come back and say he wanted to hire you as the person to kind of read off his notes when he's teaching class, (laughs) that he would just sit at the desk and kind of nod knowingly every once in a while, and he would just kind of read the notes. Yeah. So here we go. Hey, I'd I'd do it. (laughs) Hi, Derek. I met Jim Beard at Pulp Fest this past year, an affable guy to be sure, who puts out some truly unique product through Flinch Books. Your discussion on Dracula's Daughter was a welcome analysis of this often overlooked movie from the end of the first Universal Cycle. Jim's earnest appreciation has me eyeing my Dracula The Legacy Collection to take a fresh look at myself. I suppose one might consider Dracula's daughter in something of the same position as Son of Frankenstein in their respective franchises. They don't tend to get the most love, though each was the last attempt to apply any class to those series. Afterwards, both descended into the lessons horrors period that dominated the 40s at Universal. These 40s films have their own charms, and it can be argued, I suppose, that the loss of the classy approach of the 30s is part of what gives them a more pulpy appeal of their own. Writer Martin Powell observed the cheaper RKO follow-ups to the more glossy MGM Tarzans gave the later films a special pulpish entertainment value. I think his insightful observation on these Tarzan movies are applicable to how the Universal Monsters 40s cycle stands against the more artsy horror concoctions of the 30s. By the way, do you know Martin? He has great taste in genre cinema and is an accomplished writer and a nice guy. He would be a great addition to your ongoing roster of guest commentators. I don't know him. Sounds like somebody I should, though. Yeah. I've been (laughs) with Jim. I've been batting, you know, uh, what is it, a thousand or what? Sports analogies. I don't know. I Um, I hit a home. Run in the touch zone. Touch zone? End zone. zone and so not that kind of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Frank recommended somebody. It was awesome. Mike is recommending somebody. Mike is cool. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. I'll reach out to him. Okay, Martin. Dracula's daughter, like Son of Frankenstein at the least, tried to do something sophisticated with the series. As you and Jim brought out, in Dracula's daughter's case, it's complexity of character. Although, you know, something just occurred to me. One of the most enjoyable parts of your discussion was that which centered around Jim Beard's description of Sandor as a wannabe vampire. That also describes the character of Kay in the 1940s Son of Dracula, the immediate follow-up to Dracula's daughter. The difference is, she succeeds in achieving her monstrous goal, and is a lot prettier doing it. (laughs) 
This is true. Sandor is not an attractive man. She makes a curious inverse to Sandor in Dracula's Daughter. He, of course, is male and she is female. Oh, boy, is she ever. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Louise Alberton. Alberton. Yeah. Alberton is quite the femme fatale in Sun. Also, inverting the pattern is how Sandor, to achieve his own dark desires, always draws Dracula's daughter back into the gothic darkness when she desires normalcy and to be good. But Kay does the opposite and actually draws Count Alucard. It's a groaner, but in the literature, vampires are known to make acronyms, acronyms, out of their names, acronyms. Acronyms. We just made a new word. I, I did, yes. <laughs> into normalcy and being respectable. So that was that K does the opposite, draws Count Alucard into normalcy and being respectable. Even if he is just going through the motions, it's hard to argue with success. She is probably the only woman in the character's history who, before going undead, gets Dracula to go with her to wake up the local justice of the peace and put a ring on it first. What? <laughs> have you not? No, you have not seen it. No. <laughs> now I'm just thinking of Beyonce flipping her hand. Uh, don't start singing it. I'm not paying for the rights. Oh, no. <laughs> By the way, you mentioned Irving Pitchell, a.k.a. Sandor, had a career as a director. Here's an interesting and unlikely classic horror connection. His first movie directing job was as a co-director of Marion C. Cooper's The Most Dangerous Game. Marion. Marion. C. Cooper's The Most Dangerous Game, and later he co-directed She for Cooper as well. Much later, he directed George Powell's first foray into feature film entertainment, The Great Rupert, which stars a stop-motion squirrel who saves the day or the orphanage or something by tossing down dollar bills hidden in the ceiling on the happy cast who believe this legal tender is literally raining from heaven. Personally, I think Pitchell could have gotten a better performance out of that squirrel. He was just a little stiff. <laughs> IMDb reports Pitchell can be seen in a Hitchcock-esque cameo in The Great Rupert, presumably given his all for old Thespis as puzzled pedestrian. Truly, there are no small parts, only small actors. Uh, I didn't know that he co-directed The Most Dangerous Game. Uh, Tim Durbin and I actually talked about that movie here on the show a while back, and it came up during that conversation. I think his story is a little sad because he got caught up in the uh, the communist uh, mm. stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we name who's in the Communist Party, blah, blah, blah. So he got caught up in that a little bit, not, not as much as some others, but uh, it yeah, it's a little unfortunate there. But he did co-direct some things. I don't think I've ever seen The Great Rupert, but it sounds like something I need to see. That's the one with the squirrel who saves the day or yes. an orphanage or something by yes. tossing down dollar bills that people think are yes. from heaven? <laughs> I love that he's connect connecting it to Son of Frankenstein in terms of like the production aesthetic and the production itself. But the story connecting it to Son of Dracula... And really, something I hadn't considered, that it is the inverse. Because Son of Dracula, she, Dracula's kind of the loser in that. He gets manipulated by somebody who Paul McComas called when he was on the show, when we talked about Son of Dracula. He called her like the, the first original goth in, in horror cinema. I don't know if that's really accurate, but um, she's definitely an example of an early goth-type character who gets Dracula to put a ring on it. Like you said, <laughs> it's kind of cool. Which is why I like that movie. 
Because she got Dracula to put a ring on it? Because it's so different. It's so interesting. And I like I like the female characters in that. I really like marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, only with you, babe. <laughs> well, there's one more email. All right. Hi, Derek. I thoroughly enjoyed your discussion with Jim Beard on Dracula's Daughter. I've known of Jim for many years thanks to his early fan efforts and comic work concerning the Justice Society of America, and I hear him from time to time on John S. Drew's Batcave podcast and its Hornet Stings spinoff covering the Green Hornet TV series, which Jim co-hosts. But I didn't know he was a monster kid. Kind of sounds like he's an everything kid. <laughs> he doesn't have time. Jim is... <laughs> Like I said, man, I, I don't know why he and I have not met or talked before. There's so much about Jim that, you know. I found it interesting that Jim downplayed the lesbian overtones of the film, but now I tend to agree with him. I saw the film after seeing special featured documentaries in Dracula Box set where several historians pointed out those undercurrents, so I just take them for granted. But I will say that the Countess making advances on another woman, whether for food or pleasure, was probably pretty shocking back then, just as some of Whale's suggestions in Bride of Frankenstein, although Whale was more subtle. And I totally agree with Jim on Karloff's Cabman Gray in The Body Snatcher. Mm. I consider it Karloff's greatest role as well. Wow. And that includes The Monster. Sacrilege, I know. But if you ever need somebody to talk about that film, and Jim is too busy, keep me in mind. It's one of my absolute favorites. Speaking of The Body Snatcher, is it just me or is Dracula's daughter perhaps the most Val Luton, like of all the universal horror films? Well, maybe Son of Dracula would fit in there as well, but the somber moodiness of Count Valeska seems a bit like cat people to me. Great show as always, Chris. That's Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. I had him on the show to do a Star Trek episode, and I need to get him back on. Uh, well, it sounds like there should be a trio. Yeah, I, and I was going to comment on that. One of the reasons why you don't hear that more on Monster Kid Radio is the scheduling part of it. Yeah. Uh, I'm out here in the Pacific time zone. I can only record certain days. I'm just trying to organize. But tell you what, Chris, uh, expect a message probably this weekend. I'll make a note to you and Jim. Why don't we plan something for the Body Snatcher if we can make it happen? I think it'd be awesome. So it'd be really cool. Do you think there were lesbian tones in this as well? I do. <laughs> I do. And, and here's the thing. I can't remember the name of the documentary. It might have been The Celluloid Closet that talks about uh, homosexuality in early cinema. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen it, uh, but I do know that when it came out, there was talk of Dracula's daughter's footage appearing in the film, and they're talking about how she was the first or one of the, the most overt um, lesbian-type characters, vamps, in these movies. I think it could be there, just like you could see kind of Wales homosexuality between two men stuff in Bride of Frankenstein, I don't think that's the only thing that's there. And, and I think that's probably what makes a good allegory when it comes, or allegory, or, or I don't know, a message picture, I don't know, when it, it's not the only thing that's there. I mean, it's a great story. Dracula's Daughter is a great vampire film. It's a great movie, a great moody movie from that universal horror era. But if you turn it just a little bit, you can also see all these other things in there as well. And that, to me, is fascinating. That, that makes a good movie. That yeah. It's a movie that stands the test of time. Yeah. That there's multiple angles, multiple ways to view it, mm -hmm. and multiple, maybe even commentaries. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
which is why I think Romero's work will stand the, the test of time. Speaking of going back to our zombie stuff, mm-hmm. you know, George Romero's stuff. Again, I really want you to see Dracula's Daughter. I would get your take on all of this. I would like more information on how it was written. Was it really that aware of itself? Who who wrote it? Mm-hmm. Were these things really there? Or is it something we see in retrospect? Well, James Whale was at one point going to be involved with this picture. And if that's the case, I wonder how much of his stamp was left behind when he left when he was no longer attached to the project. Because he would have been somebody who would have brought some of that to it. Um, I did not get a chance to revisit the scripts from the Crypt book that I have on Dracula's Daughter. It's right over there on the bookshelf. Um, so I need to go back and revisit that and see if there's anything in there um, that kind of jogs my memory about where the story came from, who was involved in that creation and the genesis of the film. Yeah. And it looks gorgeous. The, is it the most Val Luton of the Universals? I think it's darn close. I think the Black Cat is probably even more Val Luton-esque because Ulmer loved playing with shadow so much and you see so much of it in the black cat but this one's right up there too so i'll I'll give you that and uh, yeah let's talk about the body snatcher i think that'd be awesome yeah all right that's our email that's our feedback thank you for letting me read your words monsterkidradio at gmail.com is how you get an email to us and if she's up for it brenda will probably read the email on the show and maybe even talk a little bit about it uh, I think she does a pretty good job of talking about this stuff, even though she's not seen any of these movies. <laughs> Ain't she great? You know, awesome to have her on the show. I-, I love it. Absolutely love it. So again, thanks to Brenda for reading everybody's email. Again, monsterkidradio at gmail.com is how you email me, email the show. You can talk about Dracula's daughter. You can talk about the four skulls of Jonathan Drake or anything else we've talked about in the previous 350 plus episodes. Or you can talk to us about the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. You can still vote. If you haven't already filled out your ballot, please head over to rondoaward.com. Check it out. Check out the ballot. Place your vote. You don't have to vote in every category, but if you want to, you can. And importantly, every category has a write-in choice. There are some categories that are specifically write-in categories, like Best Writer of 2017, Best Artist of 2017, Best Fan Artist of 2017, International Fan of the Year, Monster Kid of the Year, and the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. And I think I've already mentioned it before. I'm going to mention it again. Riku Browning, Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Let's make it happen this year. Of course... I want to thank everybody for helping to put Monster Kid Radio on the ballot this year for the best multimedia category. Love being included in the mix with all these other amazing podcasts between Light and Shadow, Damn Dirty Geeks, the Kaiju Cast, just so many incredible podcasts on here. I am not going to try to read them all off because I'll forget one or two, I'm sure, but they're so great. Big thanks to the Rondo group for including me on the ballot this year. And thanks for all of your support. There's, of course, a link to this on our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that we talk about here on the show. There's also a place for you to get to Skullface Astronaut's website, skullfaceastronaut.com. You can buy some of Joe's movies on Amazon. And I included a couple of links to that as well, straight from our website, as well as links where you can buy Four Skulls of Jonathan Frank on Blu-ray, or you can buy a four-pack of movies for less than $6. It's a DVD and Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake is in that mix. The other movies on that disc include The Face of Marble, I Bury the Living, and The Snake Woman. It's $5.99. Four movies, $5.99. You do the math. It's definitely worth it. Or you can pick up the Blu-ray. And speaking of Blu-rays, big thanks to listener of the show, Justin Giallo, who, again, got to get him on the show at some point, who posted that it's been announced that a Blu-ray of Curse of the Cat People is coming out later this year from Scream Factory. Speaking of Val Luton earlier, I mean, there you go. Some more Val Luton on Blu-ray. 
That's what we need in the world, I tell you. Also, earlier in the show, I played a promo for something called Archivos. You can find that at archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S. It's primarily used for storytelling, writing, putting together information for media projects, books, stories, that sort of thing. However, in talking with Dave Robison, who is one of the head muckety mucks there at Archivos, looks like we're going to be using it to also create an episode guide for Monster Kid Radio. So I'd recommend checking it out. It's going to be a process as I build the Archivos tool to work as an episode guide for Monster Kid Radio. But ultimately, the goal is that you can go there and type in Frankenstein, and it'll show you every episode in which we talk about Frankenstein here on the show. Dracula, Wolfman, whatever. Also, I'll be linking to the different guests that we've had on the show. So if you want to hear every episode featuring, say, Stephen D. Sullivan, you can just type his name in, and it'll bring up every episode he was involved with. So that's coming soon, later this year archivos.digital. Big thanks to Dave Robison for introducing me to the tool. Looks like it's going to be very useful in the future here on MKR. Also on our website, you can find information about what's coming up next week on the show because I usually post a trailer like this one. Authentic relic of the Black Room. One of the most horrible legends that has ever come out of the Dark Ages. Imagine a baron of an old castle. A baron who fascinates women with an almost hypnotic attraction. He loves them violently, and then he murders. I don't mean to frighten you, Tim, but that Gregor's a monster. Don't you feel it? Every time he comes near me. I must ask you to do one thing. Never allow yourself to be alone with him for a minute. Will you promise me that? Of course, dear. Ask him what became of my sister. Your sister? Yes, and the other woman. Take him away. Ask him what becomes of all the women. Why are they never seen again? He went to wed the beautiful tale. There! It's the man who murdered Colonel Hesp! He escaped and hid in the black room. So we're going to be talking about the movie The Black Room, starring Boris Karloff in a dual role. If you haven't seen The Black Room... Highly recommend it. Check it out before next week when I am joined by Larry Underwood, Dr. Gang Green, to talk about that film. It's a really good one. Really good conversation. A lot of fun. Always good to have Dr. Gang Green on the show. Larry's a dear friend of mine and, well, I mean, more horror hosts out there. I mean, come on. Anyway, that's coming up next week. Also, links on the website to the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, Oregon, where you can buy tickets for It Came from Outer Space, 35 millimeter print. In 3D with actress Kathleen Hughes in attendance for a Q&A. I'm going to be there. Chris McMillan's going to be there. Dominique Lamsey's is going to be there. Tom Doffel's talking about being there. A number of other Monster Kid Radio irregulars are talking about being there. I think Craig Beam said he's going to be there. So excited to see this movie at the Hollywood. If you're in the area, I would love to meet you. So please, if you see some guy running around with a recorder in his hand, looks like he's having the most fun in the room, it's probably me. Drop by and say hi. And buy your tickets early. It's a good chance it's going to sell out. I think that's pretty much it. Let's go ahead and wrap this up and put this episode of Monster Kid Radio to bed. Thank you for listening. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives. <gasps> 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Bottom Feeder. That belongs to the incredibly cool surf band based out of L.A., the Tiki Creeps. You can find them at tikicreeps.bandcamp.com and check out their album Idol Worship. Pick it up. 
love it. And let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. We'll be right back.